This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? This sensible family hatchback of politics podcasts stuck about 10 miles outside of Dover. And if you kick the backseat once more, I swear we're driving back home. I'm Alex Andreu. On Friday's show... Donald Trump made history by becoming the first former president and second star of Home Alone 2 to face criminal charges. Is this a hurdle or a launching pad? Plus, border belligerence, eye-watering food inflation, Northern Ireland impasse, and the itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny CPTPP bikini. Has the take-back control Brexit narrative unravelled? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, they're trying to stop cancel culture by cancelling actual culture. We discuss the increasing right-wing panic about cultural elites. Let's welcome our panel. Jerry Scott is a political reporter for The Times, winner of the 30 to Watch Young Journalists Award in 2020 and named one of the 100 women to watch in Westminster in 2021. So I will be watching her very carefully. Hi, Jerry. Hi, don't watch too closely. You might find something you don't like. Um, good to be here. Jerry Peter Murrell, a former chief exec of the Scottish National Party and Nicola Sturgeon's husband, was arrested on Wednesday as part of an investigation into the SNP's finances. How significant is this news? Yeah, look, it's massively uh, significant, isn't it? And we've got to be really careful. I've got my media law tutor of uh, 10 years ago screaming in my ear, shouting, contempt of court, contempt of court. Um, mm. Hi, Pat, if you're listening. But it is massively significant. The SNP's been for a really turbulent period. And I think it also massively sheds a big question over why Nicola Sturgeon um, chose to stand down. And look, I spent a lot of time on uh, the TV and radio when she did. And also when uh, Jacinda Ardern stood down, really praising women. And look, I'll do that any day of the week. But praising women and saying more than, you know, say, Boris Johnson or Donald Trump, for example, Mm. they know when to step back. Um, But it doesn't now appear that it was that simple. Um, And maybe I'm the one with egg on my face. Uh, But that's how it goes. But it is significant. It's very serious. Um, As we're recording, we've seen that the police are kind of out in the garden with spades. So God knows what they're going to find. Um, But yes, it's it's very serious for them. And the only people kind of rubbing their hands together really are, um, well, I imagine Keir Starmer and also the Tories. Seth Tavers is a historian and author who's written extensively on political corruption and the places where it thrives, private members' clubs. Hello, Seth. Hello, hello. Seth, this week, Finland completed the formal steps and joined that most exclusive of members' club, NATO. Is this shifting of tectonic plates a huge own goal for Putin, or will it be useful in feeding his confected paranoia that Russia is under attack from the West? No, I think it's enormously important, not just because it doubles the uh, NATO border with Russia directly, but for many years... Finland has seen itself as a non-aligned country, uh, and this is a decisive step in the other direction. 
if you want an understanding of where this fits into the grand scheme of things, look at Ukraine and look at Ukraine's relations with Russia over the last couple of decades. Because through much of the 1990s until the early 2010s, Ukraine very much did see itself as being in Russia's sphere of influence, even though it was no longer part of the Soviet Union. Mm. There was an understanding that there was enough of a connection at the party political level that actually... Vladimir Putin's will was not something that was seriously contested, yeah. for example. Um, and where Russia started to step in militarily was when it became abundantly clear that post-Yanukovych, this was not going to happen. Um, and so for Finland to take a stand in this way is a really big deal. We know about Vladimir Putin that he is somebody who obsesses over old maps of Russia. We know that for the century or so that Finland was actually part of the Russian Empire, that uh, he sees that as something that's historical part of theirs. So this is a massive loss to Vladimir Putin. Um, and although it's true, actually, that Sweden uh, neighbouring has had its NATO application running some difficulties with Hungary, having some doubts about this, you can't invade Sweden physically from Russia without getting through either the north bit of Norway or Finland, both of which are now NATO countries. Mm. So this is a huge step. My sister is uh, lives in Norway, and I can tell you that that north bit of Norway is a lot bigger than it mm. looks on the map because mm. it sort of folds over there. So I was taking a train from Oslo up mm-hmm. to Kotokeno, which is the sort of the northernmost big city, and two equal bits on the map took basically eight hours and then the next bit took two days <laughs> on the train. It's just <laughs> massive, vast. Mm-hmm. Our guest this week is an actor and comedian with over two decades of credits on radio, stage and screen, former president of the Cambridge Footlights and as adept at using a green screen as James Cameron, director of Smurfs to The Way of Water. Twitter sensation, Matt Green. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, it's lovely to be here. <laughs> Matt, you were knocking about for ages until basically I discovered you. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah, the yeah, truth, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Um, going back to being Ali G's Englefield Green Massive. Yeah, that was a while ago. <laughs> and uh, people can still ask me about it. I can still do the uh, the gang sign, just about. But they say an artist blooms when subject meets medium, and the subject of this government meeting the medium of Twitter seems to have been just the springboard you needed. As a bona fide content creator, how worried are you over what Musk is doing to Twitter at the moment? Yeah, really worried. Uh, um, It does feel a bit like at the moment that I work in a a shopping centre and it's been taken over by a mad toddler who's just sort of scribbling over the shop fronts and smashing stuff up and just changing the way that things work. And I'm sort of in the corner tr- just trying to run my little bit of it, hoping that he doesn't see me at any point. You They're know. doing falafel. Yeah, is that falafel, right? Falafel, okay. Sorry. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's an odd situation. It, feels, it just feels so mad to me that we let this happen because it feels like Twitter, it has got to a point where it's kind of infrastructure. It's the mm. way that journalists talk to each other it's the way that a lot of news is kind of captured and delivered um and it just makes me think you wouldn't do that with any other bit of infrastructure you wouldn't let a, you know a mad billionaire take over all of your transports well i suppose you would in this country well, you, you would. would yeah yeah <laughs> um, yeah this yeah. is where my argument falls down but um but yeah it, it is an odd place and so it doesn't mean that i've i've ended up uh, sort of joining all, all of the other places like Mastodon and Spoutable and all these places. And I'm sort of on there with like a few followers and everyone's very aware that this is not Twitter. But uh, we know we're doing what we can. 
You're about to go on tour. Yes. How will you interview yourself live? Well, that's a very good question <laughs> and a philosophical one, if, if nothing else. Yeah, I am going on tour. I mean, I, I want to go on tour partly just to sort of see some of the people who interact with me on Twitter in real life. That'd be really nice. Um, and I've been doing stand-up a long time, so I kind of wanted to do some stand-up uh, to people who already know who I am. It feels like a, a fun thing to do. Yeah, I think the show is going to be, it's still sort of in, I'm still working on it at the moment. I've got some work in progress shows happening over the summer at all the fringe festivals that I'm doing the tour next year. Um, And my current plan is to sort of do two halves and have one half quite Mm. kind of stand-up-y and that's that's sort of what I've done for years. And then the first half probably a bit more character-y with kind of maybe playing my Tory EMP character, maybe having some video stuff in it. So it sort of feels a bit more like... So as soon as people arrive, they're like, oh, this is who we're expecting. And then the second half, I'm a bit more like, and this is also what I do. So, yeah, that's that's the current plan. First up, First up like an orange like Al Capone, Al Capiche, if you will. The 45th US president was read his rights, arrested, fingerprinted and had his mugshot taken. Though he's not the first president to be arrested, that honour falls to Ulysses S. Grant, who was booked for speeding with his horse-drawn buggy, but escaped with only three points on his riding licence. Those of us who have watched The Good Wife and The Good Fight followed proceedings smugly, nodding with a knowing smile at every mention of grand juries and sealed indictments. The rest of you googled. The QAnon crowd outside watched their dream play out in reverse. He complained the country's going to hell. His allies made statements with predictable outrage. Marjorie Taylor Greene likened him to Nelson Mandela and Jesus, presumably referring to that time Jesus paid hush money to Mary Magdalene off the book. Seth Now that the indictment has been unsealed, we know the actual 34 charges. Any surprises? Yes. I mean, firstly, can we just say 34 charges (laughs) in several instances? I mean, that's a massive deal in its own right. The speculation had been that it was one or two small technicalities. Um, It appears that there's been quite a large scale um, fraud that was perpetrated is the accusation. The most interesting suggestion, which isn't actually in the charges, but is in some of Alvin Bragg's comments, is the suggestion that there may have been some tax implications of this. You know, whether he was looking to either write this off as a tax loss or whether to get something he could claw back on that, um, which I think is very interesting because the more people look at this as something about paying off hush money to a porn star and think of it as a sex scandal, the less interested people are. Mm. The money aspect is actually really quite interesting. Um, now, something to still concede on this because there, are, there is a school of thought that uh, this is still quite a low bar in terms of where felonies are in the US yeah. and so on. Um, he may not get convicted, but the significance of this is that the taboo has been broken about indictment a former president. Mm. Nixon never got indicted. There was widespread suspicion that Nixon was about to be indicted. I mean, he was actually named by a grand jury as an unindicted co-conspirator, but he was given a pardon a month after leaving office. Um, By his vice president. No, well, yes, um, by by the successor. That's right. Um, And the idea was that uh, it was for any and all crimes he might have conceivably done up to that point. Mm. And it was a remarkably blanket pardon. But the result of that as a precedent has been 
since then, there's been a, a school of thought that said a president may not have immunity from prosecution, but he's more or less effectively because we don't expect mm, something mm. like this to be followed up on. Um, and a very interesting comment from Cyrus Vance Jr., who's the um, last district attorney for, uh, for New York, for Manhattan. Vance suggested that the Justice Department of the U.S. had been in touch with him and had persuaded him to not press charges on this very investigation with the strong implication that they themselves were willing to pursue that. And he was suggesting that actually, well, they bottled it in some way. Um, This is not in some ways that decisive as a case necessarily because Trump is facing much more serious accusations of more serious wrongdoing. But it is important because it's broken that taboo. I would love to know about a pardon like that a couple of hours ahead of time. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, Trump's lawyers have requested a change of venue, uh, asking for the trial to be moved to Staten Island. Why? I mean, this is an idea that in Trump's words, uh, 99% of people in Manhattan are against him. And Staten Island is traditionally a Republican stronghold in elections in New York. So it's Mm. um, a place where he thinks he'd get a fair trial. I think he believes that this is some kind of performance. I mean, this tells you everything you need to know about Trump. Bear in mind that Trump is somebody who used to live in the Trump Tower up until he went to live in the White House. And he left Trump Tower some years ago, actually, although he still has uh, the property. I mean, this is his home turf, right? It it was his home turf. Accepting that everyone there hates him says quite a lot in its its own right. And he's left it for Mar-a-Lago, which has become his main residence since leaving the White House. And he he registered it as his main residence when he was in the White House. Again, there's a tax implication to that, Mm. partly. But um, more room for documents as well. There's more privacy. You know, it's it's high hedges in Palm (laughs) Beach. And the irony, of course, is actually, although Florida is now very much Donald Trump country, Palm Beach County hates Trump (laughs) for a whole number of nosy neighbor issues and all sorts of things. But they, they really, they consistently vote for whichever Democrat president, presidential candidate is standing against Trump. Um, so wherever he goes, he doesn't necessarily inspire a huge amount of affection. Mm. Jerry, Republican proxies say this is a politically motivated prosecution and in the same breath assert this is politically very helpful to Trump. They're literally on Fox News going, we love this, <laughs> but really angry. Which is it? <laughs> Look, I hate to be that person, but it's a bit of they would say that, wouldn't they? And a bit of both and neither as well. I mean, it, I think the the accusation that, you know, he's being targeted politically is a it's a really interesting one because I think you draw comparisons, as I always do with this country, where the judiciary is so much more separated kind of politically. And look, mm. I'm not saying there's no kind of political, um, the word isn't interference, but kind of, uh, well, I mean, slagging off, essentially. We all remember that front page of enemies of the people for the judges, the lefty lawyers interfering in the uh, immigration debate. But you don't get, you know, um, the pr- prosecutors who are out and proud like Labour or Tory and you don't get judges who um, are kind of, you know, selected as candidates through that party. And I honestly blows my mind to look at a system that's so politicised like that, you know, sheriffs elected and that kind of thing. Mm. Introducing that kind of politics into the legal system is only going to spur on those accusations of it being politically motivated. I think on the other hand, there is, you know, this uh, presidential bid, which we all expect him to be continuing with. And all publicity is good publicity. Mm. Um, I think, you know, the people that already hate Trump are only going to get more entrenched in that position. The people already love him are are only going to get more entrenched in that position. It speaks to our 
black and white politics. It speaks to the politics of populism. It speaks to the politics that we see kind of world over, where essentially no one is willing to change their position on frankly anything, um, which is a really positive picture I've painted for you there. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I found it, it, it... GOP politicians have rallied in support of Trump, and I found it quite interesting how many, how few of them said, well, let's see what the charges are before I throw my lot behind him. Um, even declared and likely nomination rivals have also rallied um, for him. Is this consensus likely to hold as more charges land and the primaries approach, you know, when DeSantis becomes a, a rival proper? Or are we seeing basically the high watermark of party support for him and it's downhill from now on? I think we're getting to the high watermark simply because and I think, again, to compare it with a situation here that isn't quite so drastic. But in the dying days of Boris Johnson, you had Tory MPs privately saying he's done, he's done, but didn't mm. want to alienate his supporters for their potential future leadership bids by saying he's done and he's wrong and he's done wrong. I think probably what we're seeing is is the same here. You know, even leadership rivals will be vying for the votes of those people who support Trump. So they don't want to go out and say, look, this guy's a madman. Why would you possibly have ever voted for him? Because they're going to go, oi, that was my guy. So I think it's more of a it's more of a game of politics at the moment. Um, how long that holds, I don't know. But, you know, you talk about the primaries coming up. I think it will reach a kind of expiration point uh, where it can't be defended any longer. Mm. Matt, Despite the macho rhetoric, when photos emerged from inside the courtroom, Trump seemed to me a diminished figure. It, it was interesting. He was small in size, pinched, sort of worried, tired. He was smaller, less puffed up than I've ever seen him before. Will this actually be a nightmare for someone like him who is just used to being in control? Yeah, I mean, I think it seems to be that this is the first example in history of a witch hunt finding an actual witch, which is uh, which is always um, <laughs> an interesting place to be. I mean, I think you're right. I, I think I feel I always feel with Trump that there's a part of him that can't believe he's getting away with it, mm. that he's always slightly. I think you can see it in his eyes, um, even when he's on stage, I, I guess, because in many ways, Trump is a stand up comedian, really. Mm. That's what he is. He's a sort of. He's a bullying, aggressive um, stand-up comedian, and I, you know, as a as a fellow stand-up, I can I can see in his eyes all the time. He's particularly early on in his in uh, campaigns. There's a little look in his eyes of like, are you guys really? Do you really? Are you really taking this? Is this? Are you? You're going with this? Okay, fine. I guess I'll go a bit further. And he's sort of pushing it and pushing it. And he's like a stand-up who's going. You want ruder? Okay, I'll go ruder. I'll go ruder. I'll go. And then at some point, you think, is this ever going to end? You know. And I think he's he got obviously won the presidency so he's sort of achieved that incredible high but i i do feel like every time he's um he's presented with actual sort of authority he crumbles yeah. like he he's very very he becomes a tiny boy again mm. of like oh you know and it's a very odd it's a, he's he's a classic bully isn't he who like he talks a big game but as soon as the 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 person in authority comes and says actually you shouldn't do that he goes okay sorry and and then he'll walk out and go ah, i told her i yeah i said i you know i i i was really angry about it and in there i i but actually, he didn't. He was quite quiet. I might chip in actually and agree with that. And there's a lot about Trump. He is not a natural politician in any way, shape or form. He is very much a consummate entertainer. And, you know, he has that background from being um, on The Apprentice. He knows how to work a crowd. He's not 
good in any way, shape or form at delivering public policy outcomes. He's very skilled at knowing, how can I make headlines? How can I stir Mm. up controversy? How can I really get to the front pages on this? And that is actually the key to Trump as a politician and the kind of person he is. And that parallel with Johnson, really, is is interesting because what is emerging with Trump is a sort of Johnson defence where his lawyers are saying, well, he doesn't bother with the small stuff. He just relies on his advisors and underlings to tell him if something breaks the rules or not. And also any kind of thing he loses because of cheating or bias. So I'm just struck in both cases, actually, how they present themselves as incredibly powerful, but also at the center of this machine in which they have zero agency, where people tell them what to do and what to say and to go from appointment A to appointment B. And do you think that's because they understand that their followers also understand that about them in some way? Maybe. That they they are figureheads. That's what they are. And and they're avatars for the feeling of the people who are supporting them in a way. Mm. And I think that's... And and they don't expect them to have, like, an inner life because that would spoil it. (laughs) I just wonder, Matt, if... Had we become complacent about our politicians, whether good, bad or indifferent, whether we agreed with them or not, there was a a notion that they would play by a minimum standard of uh, rules, a minimum sort of bar. And and suddenly we've got these people bursting through who just refuse to. And it seems our entire system just goes... "Ah." I don't, and yeah. what do I do? Well, it's that, it's that whole good chaps theory of government thing, yeah. isn't it? That, that, yeah, that we're in a situation where I think for years and years and years, sort of shame and embarrassment was the sort of filter, was the, it stopped the real baddies getting through. Because mm. at some point they get through and then shame and embarrassment would hit them and then they'd all have to leave. And it feels like now it's basically a superpower if you don't have either of those things. If you can't be embarrassed and you can't be shamed. <laughs> it's quite depressing. Then, yeah, how do, you, how do you beat someone? And the only way you beat someone is through like organising <laughs> and beating them at the ballot box. Yeah. Also, can I ask whether any of you know why Trump keeps implying that special prosecutor Jack Smith's name is not really Jack Smith? He keeps saying it in speeches. He keeps he says, Jack Smith, was that his name originally? And stuff like that. It's and almost I, if that is your real name, isn't it? And I just is he secretly um, George uh, Santos? <laughs> because there was birtherism, you know, at the yeah. at the start of Trump. So mm. I just, I mean, the I only thing I can sa- think of is that you know Jack Smith looks very Jewish. Well, I, I think it sounds to me like a name you would make up if you were trying to make up the name of a man. Like, <laughs> yes. not John well, Smith. Donald that's Trump. obvious. Like Jack Smith. Jack Smith. That'll go. That'll do. Yeah. That's what I think that's how Donald Trump feels. Seth, polling shows that floating voters in the middle of US politics, what Jay was talking about, just want all this drama to stop. You have the people who hate him no matter what, the people who love him no matter what. But then there is a rump in the middle. And it might not be huge, but it swings elections, right? Is there a scenario by which all this noise is great for Trump in the primaries, secures him the nomination, basically, but actually sinks him in the presidential election, is he, is he in truth, a less potent opponent than, say, DeSantis? Potentially. One of the things to bear in mind is that this existing polling was commissioned when there was actually no detail on what the specific charges were. So what the polling tells you is, what are people's preconceptions about this when they don't know what any of the charges are Mm. or any of the materials about? Now, it is irrefutably true that up until now, the 
process going forwards has probably actually helped Trump. If you look at his recovery in the Republicans' uh, internal polls, he's gone from trailing Ron DeSantis by 20, 30 points to actually being back in the lead. It's given him publicity. It's given him vigor. It's interesting looking at people commenting through most of last year and the early months of this year that Trump seemed a bit shambolic. He seemed to have slightly lost it. He looked de-energized and defeated. He's, He's... Really, actually, part of him, I mean, I agree entirely with what Matt was saying about uh, his being a, you know, a diminished figure and so on in the court case itself. But actually, if you look at him in front of his audience, he does seem to be enjoying the limelight again. Against that, uh, I just spent the last couple of weeks in the States, and um, I probably spoke to more Republicans than I did Democrats, because I'm interested in how this stuff works. And what they were all saying behind the scenes was very much a case of, we can't see this guy being our nominee this year. Um, whether it's this process or other processes or other things, we just can't see a good outcome mm. leading to a victory with this guy as our standard bearer. It's interesting. But isn't is I think it seems to me, based on just what I've read about it, that the problem with the Republican primary system is it's winner takes all. So every primary is whoever wins takes all of the electoral votes for that um, state. And it means that therefore, unless the Republicans can do what they didn't in any way do in 2016 Mm. and coalesce around one figure, then he's going to win by default because Mm -hmm. he's got a certain number of people who are going to be Trump ride or die forever. And he, he only needs them, even if it's only 20, 30%. If they all vote for him every time, he's just going to win all the primaries. And it, it just sounds, what you're saying, just sounds exactly like what happened in 2016 that I kept, you know, we all remember just every mm-hmm. Republican, oh, he, he'll drop out eventually. You know, it, it won't. And it's just that they have to make him. Yes. They and have the, to make him. Lose. The difference is that I think they've woken up to the fact that this has plainly happened <laughs> yeah. the last yeah. time around. And this will inevitably be the result unless they can coalesce against someone. Uh, the issue last time partly was that the main alternative to Trump was somebody as unlikable as Ted Cruz. <laughs> but then DeSantis isn't much better. Like once you see him, like because he sounds good and then you watch him and you're like, oh, he's awful. <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> um, We're not the, perhaps the intended audience Fair. for any Fair. of these people. So who knows? Jerry, a, a separate strand to the Trump defense by media proxies seems to be if this could happen to Trump, it could happen to anyone. I mean, do they genuinely not understand how the rule of law works? Or are they hoping that there is a majority of people out there in America who just commit crimes all the time and demand a sort of level of lawlessness? It, um, it reminds me slightly of there was an interview on, uh, not to plug it, but Times Radio, um, uh, a, a while back with Nadine Dorries um, when they were talking about COVID rule breaking and it was with Kathy Newman, uh, the brilliant, brilliant Kathy Newman. And uh, Nadine said to her, well, come on, Kathy, we all broke lockdown. And everyone kind of went, no, we didn't. What do you mean? Yes, it's a bit like that, isn't it? It's like, are we, are we all just committing low level crimes and um, thinking that's absolutely fine? Um Look, I think I think there is this kind of plays into that narrative of big government and the system and the establishment and the man cracking down on, you know, the the brave freedom fighter, doesn't it? That's exactly the narrative that's playing into, and it wants to, that that narrative wants to whip up sentiment that essentially you might be at risk, and mm. we see this in various um, arenas, whether it's kind of immigration, you often see it there, or, you know, immigrants coming over and taking your jobs, which obviously is not the case. Um, but it's it's a classic tactic of trying to make it personal. Mm. Um, but the reality is, is that obviously Donald Trump is extremely 
worlds away from the vast majority of people who vote for him and support for him in terms of the privileged life he leads, um, the money that he has and um, the crimes that he may or may not have committed. Uh, It's not quite the same as potentially getting a speeding fine, is it? No. Um, Matt, I want to finish on Joe Tacopina, just because I love him, I think. (laughs) He was engaged at the last minute as lead counsel, has already had public arguments with the rest of the team. He's a sort of mix of Anthony Scaramucci, Alex Jones and Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. Why do so many Trump hires seem like enthusiastic but incompetent characters in a Scorsese film? Does he have a type is what I'm asking. He seems to have a type. I think he definitely does. I think it's because Trump lives in television. Like he's like that's his that's always been his place. He's mm. lived there for forever and he thinks I need a lawyer. I need a you know, I need a tough lawyer, the kind of tough lawyer who <laughs> won't give any, you know, won't, and, and won't take any shit from anybody. And it's that and then so he just rings whoever lo- he's probably literally lo- it reminds me of Better Call Saul or Breaking Bad. He's just he's probably just like whoever's got the pictures on the benches where where he lives, you know, that guy, you know, Fat Tony from the Simpsons. That's who it, that's who he wants. And it's that sort of and, and that's because, it, as uh, uh, Seth said, it's all a performance. It's all about what what works well. I, he's not a stand-up comedian. I think the thing that people have often said about me is he's a WWE wrestler, you know, or a WWE character. Yes, and that's that. He, you know, he actually, yes, he literally was that. that. He was that, that for a few. You know, for, he came in and did a few appearances in WrestleMania or whatever. And that's where he, he's a heel turn. That's his thing. And. Um, yeah, that's that's what you'd get. You'd get the crazy. Like he's. I mean, do we know he's a real lawyer? Is he? Is he an actor? Was he in The Sopranos? You know, we'll never know. Just reinforcing that, uh, Trump's former chief of staff said that he was told in no uncertain terms by the people in his entourage, always wear your old military uniform. He was a retired general, and the one day he turned up in a suit, Trump said, "I don't want to have that guy around. He doesn't look like he does a job properly." Mm. Whereas when he has somebody with lots of medals saluting him, he loved that. He loved the feel of it. It's all about appearances that's why you know Armando Nucci's idea he came up with of just we just need to you know put him in a, a fake White House surround him with actors that would have been perfect for Trump he would have loved that he wouldn't he, would. he wouldn't have cared about the power really it's about the what it looks like and just show him fake polls every day that say everyone loves him it's yeah. not that different to what the Portuguese did with their dictator Salazar in his last few years when he was suffering from dementia they used to produce fake newspaper headlines oh, wow. showing him how brilliantly his policies were being enacted across the whole country and what they didn't tell him was they were completely ignoring all of his rules a military hunter <laughs> was running the country and he was just in his palace locked away wow. reading these fake papers <laughs> oh wonderful This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Next up, a question from a Patreon backer in but your emails. Rich Bream says, Read the government's attempt this week to criminalise a whole bunch of young people for a relatively harmless action. People seem very willing to wish any amount of torment and life-ruining consequences on criminals. They do so often with a sense of perverse glee, seeming to see them as a group of people forever separate to the citizenry as a whole. 
How do you go about convincing people that maybe the majority of criminals are just people who have done one thing wrong rather than punishment piñatas to be vigorously whacked until justice falls out? What a beautifully phrased email. Well done, Rich Bream. Um, what do you think? Well, look, I used to uh, work for a local newspaper. That's where I started out my career. And nowhere is more brutal on criminals than the comments section of a local newspaper, <laughs> um, especially on Facebook. You'd get someone, you know, nicking a bottle of Coca-Cola from the corner shop and they'd all be like, hang them, hang them, lock them up, lock them up. And um, it, is, it is kind of that kind of thing. I, I actually think it's because a lot of low-level crimes just aren't being dealt with. There are crimes in London, especially that have essentially been legalised. Uh, if you get your bike nicked, for example, are you going to get it back? No. If your phone's nicked, are they even going to investigate? No. Even if there's evidence, you know, even rape in many cases is essentially legalised. And I think that leads to people thinking that there's nothing being done and that if you are tougher, things uh, people with that would be a deterrent. We know that's not how it works out. The evidence doesn't bear out in that way. But I do think that the kind of unsettled nature of where we are, it means that people want to grab onto something, right? And they want to have some kind of stability and security. And I think that's a very emotional response. I think it's also mm. a very understandable one. Um, but I think then the way, the to go back to the question of the way that you solve that is to make the criminal justice system work properly to make sure that people are arrested and punished. And punished doesn't always mean sending them to prison for 20 years or, you know, putting them in the stocks and throwing rotten tomatoes at them. But some kind of rehabilitation, retribution, what our justice system is built on. I think the fact that that isn't happening is the whole reason why people revert to the most extreme option. Mm. There seems to me also to be a sort of private public element to this, right? The, you know, I can snort cocaine in private, but if you sniff whipping cream propellant in public, you're somehow more of a criminal than I am. And and which makes it quite a class issue, doesn't it? As well as Do you think it's something to do with basically people don't think they'll get caught? There's that sort of thing of that it that you think, well, it will never happen to me. Like I, you know, we all speed, but we're never going to get caught. And if you know, we all do the occasional dodgy thing, as you say, drugs is an obvious example. Nadine, Nadine was all... here, <laughs> but, but that's what I mean. That, that I think that that's a feeling that that there is, and, and I think I'm sure it's partly because, I mean, I was mugged in. Um, London a few years ago and the police to be fair to them they came out and they because um, the guy uh, hit me and he came out and, and drove me around in a van for about an hour sort of looking or half an hour looking around the area and then took me to hospital and that was it and 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 then I sort of you know they rang me a, a week or so later and said yeah sorry there was no CCTV looking at the specific place that, and I was like you know, it was like a minute away from the local police station. Yeah, we don't have CCTV there. So, and so yeah, I think that's part of it. You think, well, if that happened to me, then if I did that to somebody, that's probably is what would happen. The thing that just struck me when you were talking about it was, this may be an odd analogy, I don't know, but something that really, um, I, I, that really changed the way I thought about things was a few years ago, someone said, uh, someone told me about, you know, you shouldn't think about people being disabled or not disabled. It's disabled and yet to be disabled because mm. lots of people become disabled later in life and have various issues and stuff and i almost wonder and i know this i'm not comparing being disabled to crime but there is a but i am in that sense in that you might be someone who ends up in a situation where you have to do something which is turns out to be illegal or, or you end up 
doing something that you didn't realize was illegal but is illegal. You might do something in your taxes that you thought was okay but isn't okay. And then you're in the system. And I wonder if there's that thing of because nobody ever thinks it could be them who's in the system, mm, maybe they don't care about the system. There's some very interesting research around attitudes on this. I mean, for decades, it's been quite easily established um, experiments that are done by social scientists. If you take people with very liberal views and you make them fearful and scared, they come out with really very authoritarian, conservative views. A very interesting experiment from Stanford University about seven or eight years ago managed to get the reverse and managed to make very reactionary conservative people come out with very liberal views. And the thing that they did was they used their starting point telling people, imagine for a moment that you are Superman and that you're all powerful and that you can do anything you like to create the most just world that you want. And suddenly these very conservative people were talking about the need to tackle poverty and inequality and rehabilitation and things that they wouldn't have said at the start of the experiment. Mm. Um, So actually picking up on what Jerry was saying on a practical level, things like safety and people feeling secure in their homes and going around in the street does actually matter to people of a liberal mindset. And it's very, very important to then get people thinking about what kind of a world do they want to live in. Next. Hundreds of teenage skiers and assorted holidaymakers have been left as maroon-faced as an EU passport with delays of up to 16 hours at the port of Dover. Maybe they booked on the Chris Grayling line. That this is the fault of Brexit border checks isn't big news to any of us, but it was nice to see the government agreeing for once that being part of a larger community with one's neighbours has its upsides. (laughs) You know, neighbours like Malaysia, New Zealand and Brunei. I'm talking, of course, of the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or CPTPP for short, which the government's own estimates reckon is worth 0.08% to the UK economy. Jerry, um, Home Secretary Suella Braverman claims that border relations have been good since Brexit and refuses to blame the current queues on it, But the common sense which Tories love to invoke suggests this just won't wash. Um, Wouldn't it be more politically smart at this point to just admit that there's a problem and sort it? Yes, I look. Let's be very clear. It's nothing to do with Brexit. (laughs) It's everything to do with those dastardly French officials having to do more checks because of Brexit. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it would be much, much easier to just say... You know, if if you if you were of this persuasion, I think there is an argument that could be made where you could stand there and say there there is more red tape. It is taking longer, but it's worth it for the Brexit freedoms that we have gained. There are obvious arguments against that. If that is where you are politically, that argument can be made. The, you know, emu head in the sand, completely fingers and ears, la 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 situation, I think is not sustainable. Even number 10 have admitted that, of course, there are more checks because we can no longer just cross the border. So. I think that, you know, it's another case of Suella would say that. But this is going to get worse. Port officials have already said it's going to get worse. There's a new exit entry system the EU are bringing in, which is going to make it even more complicated. Um, And I think there will be a point where they do have to put their hands up and say, there are problems, but we think it's worth it. This is, I always get wound up with this with politicians. And I think that there are often very defendable positions they can take, even if people are going to disagree with them and just say, but we think it's worth it. And Mm. so often, because of, I don't know if it's saving face or they don't want people like me ringing them up and asking them questions, that they often don't. And I think they end up tying themselves in more knots than they would have had otherwise. Yeah, Delta poll in fieldwork over the weekend found that support for rejoin, we're not talking about whether Brexit was a good idea or not, 
clear rejoin not, it jumped a huge 10%. Now, the Govian view has always been that the biggest danger to Brexit is Brexit failing in really visible ways, which is why he's pushing for a, a sort of more gradual um, thing. Will this manifest in a curve, do you think, or a sudden sort of tipping point? Will will people get increasingly basically disillusioned or will they, they get to a point where they're going, no, Brexit's great, Brexit's great, and then suddenly you won't be able to find a single person that supported it? I think what it will very much depend on, I think it's going to be a curve, I think it kind of goes back a bit to that thing we're talking about, about crime actually and punishment and I think it's when it affects people personally mm. that it becomes a problem. If you were one of those teenagers or families in a hatchback sat at Dover and you can't get away on your holiday, then you're going to start thinking, do you know what, I'm quite pissed off about this. If you're a business owner who can no longer do trade in the way that you used to be able to, you're going to start thinking, oh, God, that's really annoying. I voted for this and this isn't what I wanted. Um, so I think the more people who are personally affected, and that is, you know, the Michael Gove view the more people are going to be annoyed. Um, so I think, you know, but I do think that is a slow burn. I don't think that is going to be kind of a light bulb moment for people where they mm. suddenly go, oh, suddenly this is all awful, especially because the the, the dream was sold so heavily. You know, I, I, I spent a lot of time, I was working for the Yorkshire Post at the time in those former red wall seats in 2019. And, you know, you cannot, as you guys know, put a, any more emphasis on how strongly Brexit drove that election yeah. um, victory for the Tories. So I don't think it will be, um, you know, a cliff edge, but I do think there will be slow realisation that maybe it wasn't all, you know, 350 million for the NHS um, mm -hmm. and it's not all uh, milk and honey. Matt, uh, John Redwood had a solution for those coaches of school children already stuck in a jam. Why not holiday in the UK? Has part of the bafflement of the last few years been getting to know people like Redwood, Rhys Mogg, Hannan, etc., who for decades had been considered the brains of the Eurosceptic movement? And then when their number is up, you know, when it's time to step up and give their big ideas, they give us time travel. Yeah, I mean, it's an image that's been used before, but they are the dogs that caught the car. They just, <laughs> they just are. They, it's, I've never heard an image that's better than that. They just were, you know, they, they never thought they would actually get to do it. They, they had this sort of fantasy, and God love them, you know, they had it for a long time, and it got more and more intricate and elaborate, and they believed it more and more. And then when it actually appeared, it turns out that real people don't act like they thought they would, or the real world isn't quite like that. And I wonder with Brexit regret or whatever but i don't think you're going to get to a point um where a huge number of people who voted for brexit are going to say i shouldn't have done that i think they're going to always think i should have done it but i think where we're slowly getting to is a point where they think it was it, it's been bodged it, it was mm -hmm. it was it's been a cock-up they yeah we could have done it well but we didn't and it, it turns into you know the communism was never really tried or guns don't kill people People kill people. It's not Brexit's fault. It's the people who are doing Brexit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the, the, they never believe in it enough. They never do yeah. the right thing. And, and, and we get to a point where eventually people go, well, we had a go, but in the end, we never really got it right. And we, I guess it means we should probably rejoin. I think it will be a sort of like, well, it will be that attitude rather than yeah. we got it. Because that's a really hard thing to do. To yeah, say, no, it you know, won't be a Damascene conversion. No. It, it, it won't be. 
you know, a huge, you were right, we were wrong, we're no, of sorry, course of course. Um, another of the leading lights of Brexit, the prodigiously astute Lord Frost, has suggested maybe the UK should negotiate with the EU and better data sharing, which would mean light touch checks. Take back control doesn't instantly invoke notions of light touch to me. Are we seeing a gradual climb down from the people who thought the hardest possible Brexit would be great to a sort of slightly softer version by degrees. I think so. I think it's because they just never thought about the practicalities. They Mm. never thought about, well, how would a hard border work? Um, How would checks work? And then as soon as it became obvious that it would be a bit tricky, they were like, no, we won't do that. No, that's fine. That's fine. And France have quite reasonably gone, well, no, we want to. We will. Yeah, we we don't want, you know, stuff coming in that we're not sure about. We don't want to let people in who we haven't checked and all that. And Laughing, gas-snorting riffraff coming across the channel. Would You know, exactly, exactly. So it's like, what? why? It's such a bizarre situation we're in now where every time you hear one of these Brexiteers like a John Redwood or whoever, they say, well, France doesn't have to impose these checks. It's entirely up to them. It's like, yeah, but you have given them the opportunity to do this. So maybe they'll want to do it. You're giving them a chance to, you know, throw their weight around and and show politically that they're different to the UK. Then, yeah, they're going to do that. Also, I mean, the thing that I have said from the very start is that there was a there was a notion that this was an emotional issue for the UK, but it was a business issue for the EU, and they would behave sort of perfectly uh, rationally. But, it, you know, the European project is very emotional for Europeans too. And sort of kicking sand in the face does provoke an emotional reaction, and we should have seen that and, and really prepared for it. Um, Seth, meanwhile, Kemi... Kemi Badenoch, we love Kemi, Um, she toured studios to promote the benefits of the CPTPP, telling Sophie Ridge, we haven't joined a block like this in 50 years, Mm. that there is strength in numbers (laughs) and that being in a trade block gets you influence. Mm. Um, Let me tell my listeners that my eyebrow is on the back (laughs) of my neck as I read these quotes. Am I alone in noticing the inconsistency here. No, but it's nothing new. I mean, this was an inconsistency that was at the heart of many of Vote Leave's campaign messages, if you think back to the referendum in 2016. Um, remember, you had uh, voices within Vote Leave, like our old friend Darren Grimes, saying, for example, that um, the EU is actually a, a really quite racist project because it closes off non-European migration mm. and we can open up and there's a, a, a liberal case for uh, Welcome the world, then yeah. send it to Rwanda. Str- Strangely enough, the governments since then haven't really acted upon that very far and indeed you know setting up prison hulks for um, asylum seekers doesn't <laughs> yes, seem which to be we, we've found out today maybe we should mention that that there is actually going to be a sort of prison barge for asylum seekers yes off the coast of the safest tory seat they could find in dorset <laughs> and and the local tory mp threatening legal action mm-hmm. having been one of the people who most vocally um, supported yeah. putting asylum seekers on a barge. This is very much, as you say, an emotional point on the CPTPP because fundamentally, 
you have uh, a vote leave campaign that was very predicated on the idea of Singapore on Thames, on the idea that we should emulate these great growing economies of Asia. Never mind, for example, the amount of state control in China that's mm. been involved in directing delivering this economic miracle. And so this is partly a political decision, but it's also just partly an emotional one. It's, um, and it's, I have to say, this is it's true. Uh, something to describe the Remain campaign as the Leave campaign, it's that there is a strong emotional aspect of do you feel more European or do you feel something that's more transatlantic? Mm. And there isn't actually necessarily anything shameful in being open about that. Where it gets difficult is the deception of saying, oh, no, this is entirely rational. I agree. And there was some really illuminating um, qualitative polling done that... Uh, found people from cities were more likely to support Remain because they were more accustomed to the idea of multiple identities, mm-hmm. that you can be a Londoner and English and British or whatever, um, while people in the countryside tended to have one distinct identity, and that may have had something to do with it. Um, Badenoch went on to admit that, yes, the deal may not be worth much now, but people should look at it as buying a startup. Um, will former colonies, not to mention G7 members, Japan or Canada, be delighted that the UK sees them as a startup it just bought? I mean, I, I love this as a notion here. Who hasn't invested in a startup to begin with? Well, <laughs> you know, this, this is as if it's the most natural thing in the world for everyone. But um, high failure rate uh, as well. Right, That's yeah. the other connotation. But, you have to remember also just how differently the world tends to see the British and the legacy of the British Empire, how we see it. I can remember growing up where it was a perennial staple of every bank holiday Monday that Zulu would be repeated. And we were you know, taught that this was a wonderful thing. Maybe the British Empire wasn't all that bad and it was quite benevolent and uh, all of these things, the, the, the benefits of, of civilization being brought around the world, you know, railways and all these sorts of things. Um, and that's just not how the rest of the world sees us as all. Um, I As a Greek, I can confirm. <laughs> yes, quite. <laughs> this is all news to me. I'm shocked. <laughs> um, Jerry, looking at the government justification for dropping tariffs on palm oil, to take one example, is is the connecting strand actually here deregulation? Leaving the EU makes sense because it was a guard against deregulation. Joining the CPTPP is an excuse for deregulation. I think that's right. And you're all doing very well at saying uh, CPTPP, which I have practiced a good few times. Can I just give you a tip for remember? Just remember, sleepy TPP. (laughs) Oh, that really helped. Um, Right, right. Like you're you're living in a teepee and you're sleepy and you have a pee. Well, well, sleepy TPP. (laughs) Well, look, I think it is... um, it is a excuse for deregulation. I think you know, even you know, while we're sharing um, our favourite can be um, bad not quotes. Uh, <laughs> my mine from this was: we've left the EU, so we need to look at what to do in order to grow that UK economy, and not keep talking about a vote from seven years ago. I mean, yes, please, let's stop talking about the vote from seven years ago. But you know, we need to look at what to do in order to grow that UK economy, and I think that is you know this pivot towards where this government, especially this. Conservative government of the last few administrations see economy growth in deregulation in global Britain. I mean, what is global Britain? I think we could probably talk for another 45 minutes on that if we really wanted. But it is an excuse for that. And it is a vector through which this government can push where it wants to be on the global stage. Um, I think I think the 
startup point is absolutely fascinating because I think on the one hand, you could argue that a lot of these you know, developing economies are going to be um, massive and are have to be part of our trade strategy. But it seems completely bonkers to me that we're doing that in the face of closing a door on our biggest trade partner. I mean, <laughs> it, it feels it feels like you know cutting off your nose to spite yes, your face that, a little bit. That, that whole series of interviews was sort of marvelous in that if you had fed it all into. Chat GPT would have gone, ah, what you want to do is rejoin the EU, my love. Matt, we, we currently have the, just the strange spectacle of the two main political parties trying to argue they have what it takes to make Brexit work without either of them being able to admit Brexit may actually be the problem. Will Labour crack, do you think, or, or do they risk just losing too many votes on it? I mean, I would love Labour to have some opinion on this that would that would be nice it'd be nice if the opposition would oppose occasionally on this sort of thing but i just, i mean it seems like that's not going to happen at the moment it feels like brexit feels kind of like kryptonite to keir starmer he doesn't want to talk about it he doesn't want to think about it and when people say make brexit work i think what they kind of mean is and i i accept i think this is reasonable is make our current situation work mm. like we are we have brexited that has happened yeah but but because it's always framed as like make brexit work it's like well that's it's like that's not possible anymore like that 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 ship has sailed like we're we are now in a situation it's like the old you know um joke about well how do you get there well i wouldn't start from here yeah. it's like well of course yeah you wouldn't start from here but that is where we are and that is to be fair to keir starmer where he is he can't go back and re um, run the campaign and all that stuff and rejoin is going to be a way in the future if it ever happens and so i understand why he's in you know he doesn't want to say anything about it but it is it is annoying it is annoying watching it and of course as i point out on a weekly basis it's like saying what you need to do is get remarried without asking the former spouse whether they'd have you It's nearly the end of the show. So what are the stories that have fallen under the radar this week? Um, Seth, shall we start with you? Well, we've all been talking about the Donald Trump um, criminal charges, but in parallel, um, Stormy Daniels has actually been involved in some litigation with Donald Trump, uh, which is essentially she tried to sue him for defamation over one of uh, his tweets. Mm. She told the story many times about the threatening approach she'd had in a car park. He tried to belittle that and claim it never happened. The judge in the case wouldn't allow it to go forwards. Um, and what's happened this week is that uh, she's now been charged 120 $20,000 in costs for Donald Trump. She's got to pay that to him. Uh, this is one of the many reasons why I wouldn't necessarily consider Trump is a shoo-in to actually lose this particular case. Mm. Um, but it's part of a whole raft of cases going on right now. Talking about favourite quotes, someone asked Stormy Daniels this week, uh, I think on MSNBC, whether she would be intimidated to uh, um, face off against Donald Trump in court and she said I've seen him naked <laughs> I've seen him naked how much more terrible could he be clothed um, how about you Jerry? what's your under the radar 
Uh, well, if we're talking about favourite quotes, actually, that Nadine Dorries quote from earlier is one of my favourite ever. But it's actually we've all broken the law, not just lockdown. <laughs> so it's wider than we than we um, initially thought. Um, but look, my my story that I think has gone under the radar this week, um, and I must pay credit to the uh, my friend and um, brilliant reporter who broke it, Sophia Slay at um, HuffPost is that the 888 phone number by BT is not happening. And you might remember this is uh, the phone number that was set up after Sarah Everard's murder. And it was supposed to be for women who were walking home, they could call this number or text it. You would be kind of tracked in a strange Mm. dystopian way on your phone home to make sure you got uh, got home safe. You could text someone, you call someone. BT now say they're not going to be doing it because they've looked into it and it essentially wasn't feasible. This was Pretty Patel's big plan. We all knew it was a sticking plaster at the time in the same way that flag down a bus if you think you're being followed was a sticking mm. plaster. But it really just, you know, proves that the the kind of solutions offered just aren't good enough to keep women safe on the streets, especially mm. in London at the moment. It's an important story. I'm sorry to bring down the tone, um, no, no, but no, it is no. a very important it's story. Genuinely, I haven't seen it, so it has genuinely gone under the radar. So they're, they're not going ahead with it. Um, they say they're giving all their research to people that may go ahead with such a such an option. But if that was supposed to be the solution, well, it is no more. How about you, Matt? Well, I've got I've got two. I've okay. got a quick, um, serious one, <clears throat> which is the um, Wisconsin Supreme Court uh, election, which has um, which was very important because Wisconsin is a very much a swing state uh, and could have had quite severe electoral um, implications. But it was won by the Democrats. Um, Janet, with a name that I'm going to really struggle to pronounce, I think Protestuits, um, she won it. Um, but my favourite thing is that you must look up the I wonder what speech. her real name is. Well, quite. I think she was known as Janet Smith at school. Yes. Um, but yeah, the, the concession speech by the loser, Daniel Kelly, is worth watching because it's the most sort of... Sin, uh, most sort of sour and uh, I, I, he's literally said I wish I could concede to a worthy opponent but I do not have a worthy opponent to whom I can concede uh, it's like that come dine with me what a sad little <laughs> life Jane <laughs> oh my god oh my god I, I, I get that reference that never happens <laughs> What's your second? Uh, so the other one, a, a slightly lighter one, uh, is that, um, but you know, it's serious. Four dates announced. Serious <laughs> stuff. Um, apparently, all 38,000 church bells in this country are due to ring for Charles's coronation, but there are only 30,000 bell ringers. So there is a, we're looking at a shortfall, and it turns out they put out this huge call for people, and um, they only got uh, 1,700 people. So th- th- there's a big shortfall, and basically, there are people trying to, it's become this kind of 24-hour thing of like people trying to train up bell ringers, campanologists from all the country working together. And the more I the more I read about this, the more I thought, this does feel like the setting for a romantic comedy. It feels, <laughs> it's either a metaphor or a euphemism. Or... <laughs> it's just, I love the idea of like, you know, a, a surly campanologist from the from Surrey teams up with a love um, a life loving Yorkshire lass who loves ringing bells, and they come together and they create the final you know the, the final bell, bell ringer ring. at the last moment. Mm, that sounds more like a setup for a niche porn hub. That, that's um, another option. Um, so, so mine uh, has to do with a, a report by the Common Standards Committee on. APPGs or party parliamentary groups. I have to say at the outset, not all APPGs are bad. There's some 
there's some APPGs doing extraordinarily good work, for instance, the APPG on long COVID. Um, but the APPGs that tend to be country-specific, so the APPG on Kazakhstan, they just seem to be a funnel for foreign money coming into our parliament. And um, the Standards Committee has basically said that hostile foreign actors are seeking and gaining improper access and influence into our politics. The smart people in Westminster, they tend to say that APPGs are the next big scandal waiting to happen. So we shall see, I guess. So stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. For instance, you get access to our monthly podcasters question time live on Zoom. The next one is on Thursday, 27th of April, and Roz Taylor will be answering your questions. So search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how to sign up. Many thanks for your generous support from me to Joanne Baker, Fizz Nix and Stuart Wynne. And thanks and a big hello from me to Elvin, Joe Stendhal and MF Gilliam. And also a massive hug to Marie from uh, Tuesday's I Got What Now, who was viciously attacked for saying that Nando's was a bit overrated. I agree, Marie. <laughs> Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andreu with Seth Tavos and Jerry Scott. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis with additional production from Chris Jones, Kaj Tomasiewicz and Eternal Mando's Defense from me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. If there's anyone without shame in our bloated political sphere, it's the reactionary right, Matthew Goodwin, who at a page of his own book, after getting Labour's poll numbers in 2017 spectacularly wrong, is touring the tabloids hawking his new book, Values, Voice and Virtue. His argument is as old as the tide that somehow, in a country where Conservatives have been in charge for 13 years, a hard-right insurgency brought about Brexit, where the second chamber is appointed, the monarchy and the aristocracy supreme, the top 10 landowners control more than one million acres, and a freewheeling neoliberal prime minister almost tanked the country's economy in one weekend, we are all still actually governed by the woke mind virus. There's echoes an increasing reds-under-the-bed panic of recent articles and books, one of the central exponents of the genre is The Telegraph's Alistair Heath, that suggests there is another elite, even more powerful than the actual elite, and it comprises cultural figures and institutions. Matt, why the rec- recent right-wing obsession with culture as an artist? Have you ever felt there are droves or anarcho-capitalist or far-right comedians being excluded somehow from the hilariously <laughs> funny, but being somehow excluded? I just, I always think whenever I hear about, you know, why are there no more right-wing comedians or right-wing artists or something, I think, well, why are there no more left-wing city bankers? Like, it's, that's, it's, people go into the jobs that kind of suit their um, personality. And, you know, the arts is not 
great money-wise. So if you're someone who is quite driven by wanting to make money and wanting to have some political influence or something, then you wouldn't go into the arts. That's not your that wouldn't be your bag. So yeah, I think the arts does obviously end up being more left-leaning. It tends to be people who have a sort of creative way of of looking at the world. Um and that's just the way it is. I, I just yeah, I don't think that's a, an unusual thing to 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 happen. Have you ever gotten a sense that you're satirizing the government has been noticed by the government? <laughs> I wish I could say that that was definitely true. I mean, I think I do have That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now, every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to Backers on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God What Else, every Monday morning, and some fabulous merchandise. Thanks for listening and see you next week. (laughs) 